morning. I want to introduce to you um, Shannon and Ashanta, who we've been praying for for quite a while. They were engaged in a very uh, groundbreaking project. Just you, Shannon? Okay. All right. And uh, it's amazing what God has done through uh, them and through Alabaster. So without further ado, I'm going to invite her to come and share with, with, with us blow by blow. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor Ko. And thank you to all of you, to the, our church family, for uh, yeah, really interceding for us as we travel to Africa this year. Uh, so um, Ash and I, as uh, um, Pastor Ko mentioned, we have an organization called Alabaster International, and we've been traveling to Kenya for the last 11 years. And this year, for the first time, we expanded to two new countries, to South Sudan and Ethiopia. And um, I just really want to share exactly what God has done. First of all, South Sudan, for those who probably already know, it's a separate country from Sudan now. It is the youngest country in the world. And there is actually a civil war happening in Sudan right now, a very intense one. And South Sudan is also still considered a conflict zone because it's such a young country and the infrastructure is still really, really lacking. In fact, we were warned by the U.S. State Department as we were preparing for our trip to not go. And if we decided to go, they told us to designate a hostage negotiator and leave samples of our DNA in case we needed proof of life. So it was a very intense time of preparation for us. But the first thing I want to say is this. This is a great example of us and going by his word and his leading versus following objective data and very real evidence, still of the world, right? But not from God, ultimately. And so we, we trusted in Jesus. We trusted in his word to say go in the midst of all of this. And it reminds me that the word of God is sometimes like a house. So it's like when we get a word from God, when he releases his word over us, it's like a home that we have to enter into and we have to shut the doors and shut the windows. And that home that is his word and is his presence becomes our reality. And we live, breathe, see, hear that alone within that house. That is the word of God. So that what he has spoken and ultimately who he is has to be the basis from which we move. And we trust that this house that is his word and his very presence is strong and reliable and has no deceit. So for us, the word from God to go to South Sudan while a war was happening in the north, while authority was the anchor we had to hold fast to and trust that if the Lord says go, he actually literally goes before us. And it doesn't mean we won't face hardship, right, or the real threat of death, which we at times did. But it means that we go under his covering, his goodness, his faithfulness, reminding us that he's truly enough, whether in life or in death whether in life or in death. And so we went, and God literally answered every single one of our prayers. He literally made a way, whether getting through immigration where they initially said no and denied us to get in, whether taking three helicopter rides to the village, the most remote village I've ever been to, all safely overcoming many obstacles, some of which I promise you we probably didn't even know. God just did it for us. 
And through all of this, God led us to a community that we knew beyond the shadow of a doubt we were called to, a community rocked by civil war, flooding, violence, and yet deeply rooted in faith, trusting in God for a rescue and for a new life. So we stand here as a testament that God is faithful. He's worthy of our trust and obedience, and that, yes, he may lead us into unsaved territory, to the unknown, even into darkness, because guess what? He calls us places. So we will have to face the darkness sometimes. But that our assurance is him, that he is with us and that his word and his very presence are a safe haven. So we also thank you so much for praying for our work in Ethiopia. For those who may not know, and I'll be really quick, it's quite a complicated story, but essentially 15 months ago, as I was praying for our friends in Kenya who have been suffering from famine, actually, and malnutrition, and children and families are actually dying from hunger there, God led me to research a banana-like crop called Enset. And Enset is a a plant that grows with minimal water and is is nicknamed the tree against hunger. But it's just very under-researched and unknown, although it's been providing food in Ethiopia for almost 20 million people. And it only grows in Ethiopia. And at at the time when I was researching, Ethiopia has never let that plant leave its, its borders to be used in other countries for food. But God gave me a clear word from Isaiah 45, 14. I'm paraphrasing. The merchandise of Cush, biblically means Ethiopia, will be given over to you. The merchandise of Cush will be given over to you. And so that word became a literal road. The word became a literal road that led me to Ethiopia in January to meet with the Ethiopian government to request permission for them to transfer NSET for the first time in its history to another country, to Kenya, so it can be grown there for food to be used for starving communities, and not just in Kenya, but across Africa. And other nations and authorities had asked the Ethiopian government for this and had been denied. But on June 8th, 2023, by the grace of God, the Ethiopian government said yes. For the first time in its history, it signed an agreement with us and allow and is allowing us to transfer the plant outside of its borders so it can be used as food in other nations. So we praise God, right? That is his first word, that very first word from Isaiah he gave me 15 months ago really was not just a word, right? It was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that revealed a road that God had already laid out for us to tread upon, leading us to victory for his will to be done so that his people would neither hunger nor thirst. Amen? That his people would neither hunger nor thirst. So yes, the word of God is a road, (laughs) but let me assure you, it is not an always easy road, (laughs) nor a straight one. And the enemy is there to lurk, to steal, to discourage, but we have the assurance of God. And we remember that his word is not just a word, or a promise, only very presence. It is him. Now we can move in confidence in the face of giants and obstacles. We move to the mountain because we have a mountain moving God, right? We can move to the mountain because of a mountain moving God. So I'm going to close by sharing this. And this is really, to me, the trot has given through all of this for, for me and for Ash and our team. Is that following God, church, it's costly, It's truly costly. It requires a literal death to all our rights, to know details, to even fully understand at times. It requires us to humbly embrace the reality that his ways are infinitely higher than ours. 
And it requires a commitment not only to prayer, not only to being in the word, but also minute-by-minute surrender. Minute-by-minute surrender. It is ultimately this deep adoration and humility before an almighty and infinitely beautiful God that forms a trust in us that can withstand the inevitable shaking that will come. It requires communion with God and openness to the Holy Spirit so that ultimately our love for God supersedes even the purposes he calls us to, right? Even that, even the beautiful things he calls us to, our love for him must supersede that. It means that we die into him so that our continual surrender and dying to self isn't for our destruction, but actually for our healing and rising into something new, something that has never been done before, something that smells of heaven, something that cannot be birthed from this world, but only from God himself, the thing that we witnessed last night at Walt Disney Concert Hall. That's what I'm talking about, something that smells of heaven that's never been done before that only he can do. God does not need us to execute his purposes, but by his great love, meeting our not enough places. Church, there are a lot of us, and myself included, man, there are a lot of lack, right? We have a lot of lack. We have a lot, a lot, not enough places. But the beautiful thing about our God is when our lack meets his power, there is glory. There is glory. He takes even our feeble yes and our not enough places and glorifies himself for his glory and for our good. They're merciful. So God can change nations, but really those changes start with us. Start with God changing our hearts, making our spirits pregnant with his purposes as we die to ourselves and live through him, in him, and for him. Work is not over. Even as I stand here today, there are massive needs for financial provision. There's battle over customs paperwork with the plant. It does not, things are not easy. But his word is a road, right? His His word is a home, a safe haven. And even when the enemy rears his head, our God is worthy of our trust. And nothing can thwart the good, good will of God for his people, and for the world. So, amen. God is good. Thank you so much for praying. To be continued, please pray more. Thank you. Thank you, Shannon. And thank you for Alabaster. Thank you to Alabaster for carrying the miracles and the works of God into faraway places. Uh, Daniel chapter 11 verse 32 says the people who know their God will display strength and do exploits this is one of them Uh, last night those of us who came went to Disney concert hall saw another one of those I believe that um, we are seeing before us flower things that only God can do and those things are something that God calls us to enter into isn't it amazing isn't it amazing it comes from the ground of our hearts? I'm, there's much that Shannon has not shared, and much of which sounds like it could be a movie, a spy movie. <laughs> I better not say too much. 
But anyway, th thank you for sharing that. That was just amazing. And um, more shall be said uh, later, I'm sure. I'd like you to turn with me to Psalms 116. We've been looking at something that is um, true in the meantime on our journey before God to our destination and to our destiny. I'd like to share with you from Psalm 116. We were looking, we were looking at it um, last week. And uh, I will just read a few verses and we will move on from there. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my supplications. Because He inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord protects the simple. When I was brought low, return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I walked before the Lord in the land of the living. I kept my faith even when I said, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my consternation, everyone is a liar. What shall I return to the Lord? Or as we read last week, what shall I render, return to the Lord, render for all His bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. Verse 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of, the, of, the, of His people. This is a theme that we were looking at last week as we talked about vows and uh, if you entitled last week's um, uh, sermon an avowed people um, we are discovering or examining how god structures and strengthens the work that he's doing in us so that there is a future and a hope some people feel they can't go any further some people feel that uh, after many years of becoming a Christian, they've not really seen that much change happening in their lives. And I want to talk about how our relationship with God is something that has a structure to it. And as we, we understand that structure of relationship, that covenant relationship with, with Him, we realize that God does not just want to take us from one experience to another, but He wants to grow us, He wants to build us in Him. And so we were looking at that as we looked at Psalm 116. And we said there's something about this cup of salvation that God gives to us. It says, verse um, 12, What shall I return to the Lord? What, what shall be my response to Him after He has saved me, after He has uh, touched me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. It's almost as if what God is saying is that there is such a thing as a cup of a cup of salvation. And this cup of salvation appears both in Old Testament and New Testament. Um, do you remember in uh, uh, John chapter 6, after God, uh, Jesus had filled, uh, fed the, the 5,000, or five, five, the multitudes um, with bread, and, uh, and He said, you know, you are looking for Me, not because of anything, but because you ate the bread. Yeah? Blessed are those who actually eat the living bread. I am the bread of life. You have no life in you unless you eat the bread of life. Unless you eat the bread of the Son of God, 
and drink of, the, of his blood, you have no life in yourself. And the psalmist says, I will, what shall I do after you have saved me? I will drink or lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I'd like to say that sometimes as Christians, we don't realize that the salvation of Jesus, the seventh salvation of God, is something that goes beyond an event, beyond an act of deliverance, or He answers your prayers, or helps you to pass your exams, or He heals your body, or He touches you, or He does something great in your life. There's something more. There is a whole cup of salvation. And in Psalm 116, He says in verse uh, 1, I love the Lord because He has heard me, heard my voice and my supplications, because He inclined His ear to me, Therefore, I will call on Him as long as I live. That's amazing. When we call upon the name of the Lord, God who does not need to incline His ear towards you, don't you think? He doesn't need, He's not hard of hearing. When the psalmist says, the Lord inclined His ear to me, He's not saying, the Lord, huh? please repeat, repeat it a little bit louder, dear. saying that the Lord brought his whole being, his whole heart, his whole person towards me. When I ask God to help me to pass my exams or, or, or to, to provide my rent for tomorrow, he does not just do it. He sold himself to me. Isn't that amazing? And what is, what is the psalmist said because of that? Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. What the psalmist is basically saying is this, God isn't one of those gods in which he's looking for clients, in which he'll do a deal with you, and then after deal is, is, the deal is done, he says, bye. He actually inclines himself towards us, and we respond by drinking the whole cup of salvation, not just that event that he's taking. We don't just say, Lord, thank you for doing that, and bye-bye, and I'll call you when I need you again. But he says, I'll call upon you for as long as I live. What God does is that he ties us to himself. Now, being a Christian is not just a person being a person who has his prayers answered or her prayers answered. You, when you call upon him, you receive all of him. You don't receive just an answer to prayer in which after the answer to prayer is, is, is done, no change happens, nothing else happens. He actually inclines himself towards you. He brings himself. You know, he's, he's like this. You ask for A, he gives you A, B, C, D, all the way to Z, or to Z, sorry. Isn't that amazing? He gives us his whole, his, whole, his whole self. He inclines his ear to us. And what God does is that he puts within us a hunger for him, for we want more. This journey that we are on, it's not a journey in which we have sporadic uh, forays with God. It is a journey in which God walks with us and He comes on the inside of us and He changes us. Isn't that amazing? And so He says, He says, Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. What shall, verse 12, I render to the Lord, or what shall I return to the Lord for all His... I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I'll pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. And last week we spoke about the fact that vows speak of the fact that we buy into God. 
Val speak about the fact that we tie ourselves to God. God ties himself to us. And this is not the end of the story. Now, many Christians feel that they have not grown in God, that their house has not been built because of the fact that they have not continued with God. They don't realize that God has not only given himself, uh, given us an answer to prayer, but he wants to be in covenant relationship with us. A bit more about that. There's a structure to this covenant relationship in which, as we said yesterday, uh, last, last Sunday, that there are vows that tie us to him. Some things, some precious things, we will never get, keep at it long enough. And there's a way in which we are inconsistent. And because of our inconsistency, we never go far enough to get the precious things of God. Vows, what they do is that vows cause us to understand that we would love to follow God, we would love to be true and, and, and be faithful to God, but we well know in our bodies, in our minds, that we are inconsistent. We are fickle. We flirt with God. We make intimations of possibilities, but we don't follow through. And there are things in us that make it hard for us to do that. Vows take in consideration of the fact that we are unfaithful people. And no matter how much we try, we are not able to do that. The things that we promise God. And so we spoke about that last week. But vows also are not just legalistic things. Uh, vows are things by which God wants to tie us to Him so that we can experience His faithfulness all the time, again and again and again. Um, if you look at um, Luke chapter 17, Luke chapter 17, we see this. Let's look at it from verse 11. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going to Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him, keeping the distance. And they called out saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They kept their distance because they knew that in the law, um, you have to keep a certain distance. In fact, if you're a leper and the wind is blowing this way, and you are here, you have to get out of the way. Because even the wind blowing uh, from you uh, will actually affect other people. So leprosy was seen as uh, not only a physical disease, but a, but a spiritual disease as well. So they were at a distance. So the leprosy was not just a physical uh, problem, but it was also a problem of being excluded from society. Yeah? And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, sorry, uh, let's go back verse 14 when he saw them he said to them go didn't touch them he didn't uh, uh, um, um, do the usual thing he said just go and show yourselves to the priests because when a leper, leper is healed of leprosy he has to validate that with the priest and so the, the, the priest will have to sign off on it so to speak and then they will be admitted back into society what Jesus was saying is that he, I want you to walk that distance to the priest's uh, office or the priest's house and get and, and believe that on the way you are going to be healed. 
And so this leper on the way was healed. And as they went, they were made clean. Yeah? They were not just healed, but they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan who was considered uh, uh, haram, or how do you say, not clean by the, by the Jews. And then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? You see what Jesus was doing? He's wanting a relationship, right? And what they were doing is that, thanks, I got my healing, bye-bye. And what Jesus is saying is, this, that's not the end. You haven't drunk and finished the cup yet. I want to do more than, than that. And then he said to him, get up and go on on your way to this one person, this Samaritan who, who came back and, and gave thanks. Your faith has made you well. Another translation would put it in a way that we can understand better. It has made you whole. And that whole is the word for salvation, sozo, which has to do with a, a, a fullness of healing. It means the salvation that God has intended for all of, all of humankind by which we'll be transformed into Him. It would not just be one fixing of a problem, but it would be something in which God, Jesus would reside in us and make us whole. The idea is this, that one person was made whole. The nine people were healed, but they were not made whole. And this is something that is a, a, a phenomenon with all of us. We tend to think of God in a client model kind of way, in which God is someone that we are, in which we are His clients, and we go to Him, we do whatever we need to do to get this thing fixed. But we control what we want. We are the one who set the agenda with God. But you never set an agenda with God. How many of you know that? He will always give you more than you expect, more than you ask for, and sometimes more than you want. He wants us to be whole. And what the Bible means by whole is not some new age or worldly understanding of wellness, but he means all that but more than that. He means the wholeness in the sense that restored to being a people who know their God displays strength and do exploits. Restored to the image of God, the Christ-likeness that God has called us to. And there's something in which that can only happen when we change the relationship we have with God from that of the client model by which we come to God with our own agendas and we leave God with our own agendas and we actually say, God, you change that agenda and I want to be yours. I can only be free if I become your slave. I can only be free unless, uh, if, if I'm brought into your ownership. Amen? So now, this is something that we've spoken about. I would put it to you that in this journey that we have towards uh, uh, our, our destiny, what God wants to do is to build us up. But that, that, that building up, that transformation, the building of our house cannot actually happen unless He becomes the master of the house. Because He will never save that which is not His. We are not His clients. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. 
And what God wants to do is to, is to, this, to do this, to not cause us to be stuck in our journey, but to be building. Because God has great things for all of us. Amen? This relationship, we do understand, is a relationship that is not just a matter of feeling, not just a matter of emotion. There needs to be something, those of you who are in any kind of long-term relationship, if you are married or you have any kind of long-term relationship with a meaningful, meaning, meaningful person, you actually, a meaningful relationship with a person, you, you will know this, that any, in any relationship, if you just go by what you feel or what you feel comfortable with or what you feel safe with, you will never have a long-term relationship. There will always be something about it that's uncomfortable. Amen? Yes? And you need vows because if that relationship doesn't have a, have a, have a, a relational structure, a covenantal structure, we will actually give up halfway. And that is why some people constantly say, I'm not safe. I'm not safe. And they're never able to build up real relationships with people because of the fact that there are certain things that are uncomfortable about it. But for a, rela- a relationship to be like a house that's built, especially if, you have, if, you, if, you are, if you're starting a family or you're thinking about doing that, there is a way in which vows be- become part of that structure of relationship by which we say, I'm tied to you. Think about one thing that God may be wanting to do in terms of vows for you. Think about one thing that will tie you into something that is long-term in God. And that is why... um, Last week we spoke about Deuteronomy 26 where the nation of Israel would bring their first fruits to this place and they would say, I was a, my father was an, a wandering Aramean and my people went into slavery into Egypt but God rescued them with a, with a mighty hand and outstretched and I'm here, here to declare to you that my life is belonging to Him. And here are my fruit, first fruits. The idea was this. I want to enter into a, pr- a place in which God, you will not just supply me one time, but you will supply me for the rest of my life. And I buy into you. And that's what the first fruits are, are all about. They wanted to be tied in with God. And God knew that there's no way they could survive the wilderness unless they're tied into God. Yeah, vows do that. I remember when I was uh, in college, I faced the problem of my inconsistency in my relationship with God. I found myself very like that. I must admit, I was ex- really flaky, extremely flaky. I would make commitments to God and then I would renege on that or just forget that I made a commitment to God. The main the number of co- just pathetic, yeah, just pathetic. 
And what will happen is that I'll get into some kind of problem and I'll get into some trouble. Then I will come to call on the name of the Lord. I will get on my knees beside my bed and I will be a very pious Until God answered my prayer and got me out of trouble. And then I would thank Him and I will go on my merry way. As if I don't need to be trammeled by God anymore. It was horrible. If you had known me before, you would have thought, this person can never be a serious Christian. In fact, you would have been so irritated with me that you would have thought that I'm just a flake of the worst order, of the lowest order. So it came about that um, I was sitting for my, my, uh, my, uh, my junior year finals, and in Malaysia, all, everything's on the, on, on the exams. 100% are on these exams that take place over a period of two months, and after the two months, you will know your results. I had not studied, I had been very flaky, I had been very, very irresponsible, and uh, I was a Christian, but there were no things to, to, to tie me to that. And so, a few weeks before the exams, I found myself in a, in a, in a complete panic. And uh, so I came back to that place that I always come back, at that spot at my bed, coming to God, and immediately I went down on my knees, and I thought, this is very familiar. And a whole barrage of legitimate self-recrimination came upon me when I said, I've done this before. I promised you, Lord, before that I will be serious with you from the, for the rest of my life. I will do my devotions for the rest of my life. And I haven't. And here I am in trouble and I need your help again. Have you been like that? I'm sure not. And so I prayed, and I realized immediately that there's something missing about the way in which I had been relating to God. I could not keep a promise. I just could not keep a promise. And so I realized that there needs to be something that the Lord will need to do in me to remind me even though that reminder is uncomfortable. And so I said to the Lord, I vow that I will spend time with you every day before I study. And I knew I had very little time to study for the exams. So, you know, when you're, you're desperate and you're swatting like crazy, you actually wake up early so that you can study. I woke up early and immediately the Lord just reminded me to, to, to help me in my vows. He says, you said you're going to do your devotions. You're going to spend time with me. And so I reminded myself and I agreed to that vow. I realized that sometimes we make vows, but we don't agree to those vows. We don't allow those vows to be above us. We come over the vows, vows and our will overcomes the vows. I realized that I need the vow to be above my will and I should bring my will under, under, under that. And I said, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but you remind me. If you remind me, I will take that as a choice point, a decision point, and I will spend time with you. Now, I had no idea about hearing from i just going to keep my vows. Okay? So I kept my vows. Every day I wake up, I wanted to study, and then something, a little inside, delicate little something would tell me, you promise you're going to spend time with me. And so I put my books away and I would spend time with him. 
I had no expectation that I would hear from him or anything, but I said, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I do it until I felt I'm enough. It's, that was enough. And so I would spend time with God. Sometimes it would, have to, it would be half an hour. Sometimes it would be one hour. And sometimes it would be more. I would spend time with him until I felt satisfied. I felt that this is, there was a peace that came upon me and that was all there is. I didn't necessarily hear from God, but there was a peace that came upon me. And when I, when I, when I felt that peace, I said, okay, sometimes I say, can I study now, please? And I felt, okay, I can go and study. And you know, it was amazing. I found that when I did that, my mind would be so much clearer than usual. I was not necessarily making too much of an effort to try to hear from God. I just felt that just by spending time, God would clear my mind. And I have to say, while I was studying, there would be this little nudging, little thing that I would study and it would be almost as if something inside me would say, study that, study that. And I would study that. And I had very little time to study for the exam. So I would study, do you have this word called spotting? Do you spot for exams? Four questions, four long questions. I studied four topics. There were 12 topics to study, I studied four. I would just study enough so that I would have enough questions to answer. And you know what was amazing? Spot on, the Lord would show it to me and what I studied was just enough. It's amazing. But I felt that there was a whole new feeling to vows, that vows are what I make to the Lord, and the crux of that vow was that when the Lord reminded me, I would say this time, yes, I will do it. You mean? And I found that there was, it was almost as if Psalm 63 came through. I, my soul clings to Him, I do the best I can, my own feeble efforts, and the Lord will uphold me hold me in that. And so, when that happened, I began to realize vows are actually very, very, uh, very, very powerful. And that was what cleared the way for the next stage in my spiritual life in which, after I, I, I passed my exam, actually, I, 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 it's, 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 it's the grace of God. Whereas everybody was studying everything, I was studying just this amount. And it came out that I was one of the top students in that, in that year. I was the third third highest, not the top, but the, but the third, third highest. People thought, oh, Michael has been studying in secret in the library. We call it the snake temple for snakes who, are, who, who pretend to not be studying. There's a way in which God is actually wanting to tie us. And I realized that was the beginning of God's uh, working in me, to tie me to himself, not just tie me to a particular result. Now, the second thing I want to share with you has to do with the fear of the Lord. If you can turn with me to um, uh, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Here's another encounter that uh, Peter had with the Lord with the dis- and the, the rest of the disciples. Okay, Luke chapter 5, we'll read it from verse 1. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, And the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. He saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, Jesus got into one of the boats, 
the one belonging to Simon, Simon Peter, and asked him to put out a little away from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon asked, answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The fear of the Lord came upon him. For he and all the others with him were amazed at the catch of fish. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. And when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything. an amazing thing. The fear of the Lord. There's something that happened to Peter after the miracle took place. But the fear of the Lord is something that's really crucial. Um, Psalm 61 says, You have given me the heritage of those who fear the Lord. What is the heritage of those who fear the Lord? Psalm 25 says, The the secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him. Those who fear Him get the secrets of the Lord. How many of you would like Or another verse, verse says, The friendship of the Lord is with those who fear Him. We don't like the word fear because of the fact that fear is this cringing thing that makes us feel terrible. Fear, in most cases, is a bad thing. Gripping fear or anxiety. And the fear of the Lord, I would... Fear of things or the fear of man. Fear of people. Fear of the Lord is not something that is a legalistic, dysfunctional thing. The fear of the Lord is something that is powerful. just dull. We just can't see. But the fear of the Lord has to do with a certain spirit of revelation that sees Him as who for who He is and clears the cobwebs, clears the clouds, clears the darkness and causes us to see things as He sees them. The only antidote for the fears the, and, the, and, the, and the, um, the, the, the shadows of fear that actually come along is the fear of the Lord. Okay? It's the fear of the Lord. Now, let's look at it. How did this fear come upon Peter? How can we experience the fear of the Lord in which the Lord begins to reveal Himself in such a way that our own fears are knocked out of the, of the, the ballpark? 
let's go back to um, uh, Luke chapter 5. So, there's the, there are three stages in fear that I would propose to you, okay? There are three stages. The first thing is, when Jesus got into the boat, he saw two boats, verse 2, verse 3, he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds on the boat. I wonder what Peter thought, that Jesus was, seemed to be so presumptuous that he could actually take his boat and, and, and tell him to go and do this. But somehow Peter obeyed him. Don't you think it's, it's quite interesting? Not only that, when, he, when Jesus had finished speaking, when he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch, Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Do you sense a resistance in Peter? Do you? It's not a trick question. Do you sense a little resistance? Peter is saying, look, you're a carpenter. You know how to make tables. I'm a fisherman. I know how to shit fish. I, I've caught more fish than you have eaten. That would be actually true. I know more about fish than you do. And Jesus said, put it out. And then after that, after that, after he had finished, he says, let down the nets. This is where, this is where the fish are. And Peter is saying, look, we've fished all night there, that very spot. It's not, there's nothing there. But at your word, I will do it. May I suggest that the first stage of fear is a respect for the other person. He had regard to Jesus. He didn't fear him, but he had regard to Jesus. Does that make sense? He was able to succumb to the presence of Jesus, the fact that Jesus was saying something, and he had a choice to actually say, I don't respect you. Actually, I'm the fisherman. You're the farmer. You're the, you're the carpenter. I, don't, I know better than you. But he listened to Jesus. May I suggest to you that if you don't have the fear of the Lord, you can have one thing. There's, a, there's an earlier stage of that, and that has to do with regard for the Lord. If you have no regard for another person, you will not listen to that person. You will assume that that person is nonsensical. Yeah? Hello? Most of the time, we don't regard one another because we don't understand what each other is saying. Don't you think so? In fact, we think that if we can't understand what the other person is saying, then that other person is saying nonsense. That means we don't have regard for that person. What do you think? Now sometimes we can't have fear because of fear of the Lord, because of the fact that we are so stuck in our own idea that our own idea over, displaces every other idea that is not in congruence with that. And so there is... Peter had all this. He had all this knowledge and all this experience but he had regard to Jesus and against all his experience, he put that aside because he had regard to the fact that Jesus was in the boat. What say you? It's just a habit. It's just a, a relational habit. 
We're talking about the structure of a covenantal relationship. The structure of any kind of relationship between husband and wife, between friends and all that, is that you have to regard the other person. If you don't regard don't take the other person seriously. Or if you're full, so full of your own experience, your own point of view and all that, that you cannot hear the other person, you cannot give validation to anything, you don't even give it a chance, you just dismiss it, you will never experience the fear. You will never experience real person. You will never experience the truth that the other person has to say. We get impatient with people and God will bring people in your, into your life in which He will give you practice to that. People who you will be impatient with because of the fact that they don't speak your language. They start mid-sentence. They don't seem to be coherent. And I've learned to learn how to work with people who are like that. who They don't speak clearly. I like people who speak step by step, step by step, step by step. Okay, I can see the logical steps. and I, I hate people who... Well, I don't hate them. I get irritated because when they start with point seven and assume that I need to know point one, and now I have to ask questions. So what? what, 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 what? Point one. Oh, oh, okay, 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 okay. Let's go. There are times when I have to, to I have to listen, and in order for me to me have a, to have a proper structured relationship that will last for a long time. I can't go by my own preferences, my own feelings, my own irritations, my own kind of whatever it is. Because the more and more I go by that, I will not be able to experience the revelation of what is precious from the other person. Does that make sense? So what Peter had is a certain, you can call it politeness, you can call it a regard, you can call it deference, whatever it is, with towards Jesus, he, he recognized there was something upon him and so he was willing to put put in suspension his own unbelief. And so, that's the first stage. I think with God that's really important because you don't know what Shannon was talking about has to do with the fact that you go by His Word. His Word which we don't necessarily understand. When He's speaking, He speaks to us and He doesn't necessarily explain it. But you have to wait on it. You have to be patient to it. And if you give patience to it, you know what it does? It works in your own ego, on your own ego, uh, my ego. It, it works on my own sense of my own self, my own agenda, my own self-determination. Uh, and, um, and that has to be put aside. That whole exercise with God, now I don't want to keep it on the human level because we're talking about something that has to do with God. It has to do with something of a revelation that's much more glorious than the precious things that we get from one another. It has to do with the fact that some people will say to me, well, I would like the fear of the Lord, but honestly, I don't really have that. I can't help it. When I'm sinning, He seems very far away from me. He doesn't seem that close. He doesn't seem that imminent. I don't... I don't I'm so filled with my own agendas or my own thoughts, my own um, imperatives that I can't, I can't see anything happening with that. And what the Lord does with, with this first stage, so to speak, is that He clears our mind away and puts a discipline in us to regard the Lord. 
You go through the day and you remember the Lord. It's just a habit. Now, let's look at what happened next. The next thing he did was take it a step further, not just regarding the Lord, letting God come into your, to the space of your boat, but saying something that would grate you. This is The first part is just regard for the Lord, um, making space for Him. The second thing has to do with something more. He says, put out into the deep, verse 4. Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And immediately the, the reaction comes. We've, 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 we've fished all night. We've worked all night long, but have caught nothing. This is the evidence. And this is where the evidence and the word... And in this collision... Something has to break. I do believe that we come to such break points in our lives where if we are waiting upon the Lord and God gives us a word, He does speak to us something that will break the impasse. It will break the impasse. And Peter said, but at your word, I will let it down. Isn't that amazing? But at your word against all the experience that he had, against all the, 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 the bad experiences, all he knew, and all his sense of his own importance, because he was the expert at that, it says, but at your word. Every time God wants to move, there is a but there. There is but at your word. That but butts up against our own experience. It butts up against all these things. And we come to a place where we are faced with a higher authority and that is the authority of God. And what God does is that He begins to show it up and it is in this place where something breaks. What is at stake is this. Is my experience and what I know the sum total of all the reality there is or does God come to me with a reality from outside of that circle and come to do something which is quite miraculous in my life? Now if I give place to Him even though I don't understand what his word is saying, and give him room, something will break. And some of us need that. We need that break in our lives. And so what he says is this, at your word, I will put down the nets. And immediately God came in. Now, it is at this point where Peter experienced a thing of God. Now, the thing of God was not just fish, not just a whole abundance of fish. What came upon him was a revelation of the godness of God in Jesus. What came upon him was something much more than a lot of fish. What came upon him was a revelation that who was standing in front of him was the almighty God, the creator of the universe. And he became much more sensitive about the words that he had spoken to Jesus. He probably felt bad. He must have been pretty peevish when he talked to Jesus and said, look, look, I'm, you know what, we fished all night, please. Please, please, don't. And he suddenly finds that there's a greater reality. I think that most of us need to be exposed to that greater reality, don't you think? Because if it is true that your experience and my experience is the sum total of everything, then that's all there is to it. Then the Christian life is just gathering all the experiences that we've had in nature and just, that's all there is. But could it be that the fear of the Lord the secret of the Lord, the things that actually cause breakthrough, 
stand outside of that. And somehow when these two worlds collide, the world of God and the world of us begin to collide, in, in our minds at least, something breaks. Now what happens is this. If you and I want to experience the realities of God and the, the powers of God, there is a point in which a humbling needs to take place. A somehow an, you have to give. If you give, something will break in. Don't you think? What say you? Now God wants to bring us into a relationship with Him in which the fear of the Lord builds the structure of our relationship so much so that our life is, becomes a building that's built out of many, many experiences in which the small, small circle of our experience clashes against the large, the humongous, the huge of God. And God gives us a little humble word, just a little humble whisper, a little humble word. You know, um, I was told that 20 years ago, when Walt Disney was being Rajiv, as an undergraduate, a lowly undergraduate in UCLA, said, Rajiv, correct me if I'm wrong, your brother told me that, told him something, he's going to be at the Disney concert one day. Yesterday, last night, we saw that concert. It's nonsensical. You know, most people will say, you're egotistical. But actually what happened is this, God put a little thing in us. And the word of the Lord, the cross, offends, offends, and offends, and offends, until we are humbled, and we are humbled, until the offense is taken out of it anymore. A Christian is a person who has been offended many, many times. But the offense comes because we think it doesn't work. We think we know better. And, and, but there's, there's still that persistent, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then it happens. Praise God. We're in for a very exciting life. But that happens when a big world of God comes in a very small and humble way and impinges on the comprehensive world of our own understanding. And so what's happening, he's, he's got his own ideas, but he needs an answer because he, not, he has not caught any fish at all. So he's listening and he's listening and he's hearing, is there any answer to the utter bereftness of this night? This utter futility of this night? We've worked all night. We've worked all night, worked no less and caught nothing. And he's listening, he's listening. And then Jesus comes in and he hears that Jesus is, does miracles and he, he's the Messiah. And he, he's not sure whether he can believe it, but he, Jesus steps into his boat. Wow, he chose my boat to enter in. And he, and he thinks a different way. He doesn't think according to, the, to the, the logic of his own experience. He thinks in a different way and he says, okay, alright, come in. And then Jesus said, put your boat out. Oh, please, we've just... We've just clean our nets. It takes a long time to clean nets. And they go out. And as they go out, he says, put the nets down. Now I really need to clean my nets. Again. It's very, very inconvenient. He puts his nets down. But he's listening. A person who has regard, who hasn't had a revelation yet, but has a hunger, listens a certain way. You just give me a word. Just give me a word. Just give me a word. Have you had that? I just need something. 
when you're looking for something, you're searching for something, just give me a word. I will take any nonsense. Just give me, give me something. And Jesus says, let down your nets there. Here, and all the, 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 the protestation comes up. Let it be there. But a person who has regard is willing to say, okay, I have no, I have no other options. I'll just try it. And they're listening for the word. They're listening. And the word comes. You're able to hear him when you're listening. What say you? When you're desperate enough, you will. If you're not desperate enough, you won't. You won't care. But if you're desperate enough, you will. When that happens, God in Jesus not only gave him the fish, but revealed himself. And Peter immediately realizes everything clears. The whole atmosphere clears. The whole, the whole stage of things and many things and thousands of thoughts and thousands of, of suggestions clear the way when suddenly the Lord comes in because he had given prominence to Jesus and he began to shine and all the other fears went away. That revelation comes after regard. Amen? And then Jesus said to him, don't be afraid. I'm going to cause you to catch men as well. The amazing Gary says, it's grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Fear is not necessarily a bad thing. The fear of God, we are so afraid of doing the Christian life with fear that we focus more on not having fear than having God. And I realize that in our day and age, we are so fear-averse. We don't, need, we don't like to hear anything Old Testament sounding that talks about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not something that's a cringing fear. It's a regard for God. But at the end of the day, it is God that puts the fear of you. The fear of God is a reverence, a revelation. So perhaps a working definition of the fear of the Lord may go something like this somewhere. The fear of God is a burst of revelation knowledge that clears out all other fears, thoughts, suggestions, untruths, etc. and brings us to the sheer awesomeness of God. It dislodges us from bondage. It's really interesting that in Psalm 112, you can uh, put, put it up on the screen. Psalm 112 tells us in verse 1, Happy are those who fear the Lord. You want to be happy? Happy are those who fear the Lord, who greatly delight in His commandments. Their descendants will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. What Psalm 112 is saying is this. Those who fear the Lord are happy, and they will delight in His commandments and His word. It is the fear of the Lord, the regard for Him, that causes us to be happy, to delight in Him. 
fear is a way in which we regard the other person as having enough being, enough weight, integrity, enough truth in them, enough solidness in them, that I cannot run roughshod over that person. Fear is a, is a revelation that that person is much more than what a But the fear of God happens when God reveals Himself to us. And He shows Himself to who He is. No longer just words in print. But the God who is standing right in front of us. It says here, happy are those who fear the Lord. When I was uh, being mentored by my pastor in Malaysia, I don't mind telling you that I was very afraid of him. He was one of those guys who just never smiled. Just never. They call him cabbage face because of the fact that his face is all screwed up. And people would say, where's the joy of the Lord? And they would dismiss him. But I knew there was something that he had that went beyond the way his face looked. And he invited me to be part of his church. I was looking for a church at the time. And it took me about two weeks before I really decided I'm going to join the church because of the fact that he was such an austere man. So austere. Not like my family. My family is always smiling. With him, austere. You do something great, he will never praise you. But the Lord had me to be in that church. So I joined the church, trembling. I could, on, I could, in the in the church, which is not a not a large church, I was very aware of him, because I feared him. Have you been in places like that at work or whatever? I was afraid of him. And so every time I did something, I looked to him to see whether I did something wrong. And as for praying, I would not dare to pray. Pray. My tongue was tied because I was scared I would. He would scold me for saying, praying the wrong thing. How would you like a pastor like that? Oh! But the Lord had told me I have to go. So I did. Instead of joining my parents' church, I joined this church. And the more and more I stayed there, I stayed a very respectful, but, but responded to him quickly whenever he asked, asked me to. Okay. Oh dear, 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 dear. I had many fears, as you can know. I could not tell the difference between God and Him. It's almost as if when He said something, I felt it was God speaking. The two things were conflated. And I didn't know how to deal with it. I tried doing the cell therapy thing, you know, it's like, okay, this is fear, this is man, this is something that's there, I should 
respond to him in a healthy way, right? So I tried to do it in a healthy, unfearing way. And I got myself into all kinds of trouble because the more and more I looked within myself at my own fears, I, I got all mixed up. And then the Lord spoke to me, I think, He spoke to me and He gave me this idea. It says, just honor Him and fear God and do it all unto God. So I didn't worry about the pathology of my own fear. I just said, I'm going to just... And so I did it. I was a very obedient disciple. I did everything. But I, this time I did it not worrying whether this was fear of man or fear of God. or what it is. I said, I'm just going to do it unto you. And as I did that, you know what happened? God began to honor it and God began to reveal himself more and more. And I began to feel the presence of God more important than the presence of my pastor even. More important than the people around me and how I was, how I was doing it right. It's almost as if I had to let go of my fear of doing it wrong. I had to almost let go of my fear of my unhealthy fear and just put it on to God and just release it all to God. Does that make sense? And I said, okay, I don't know what is this. I'm just going to do everything unto the Lord. I'll be very obedient. I'll do whatever it is to you. And the Lord began to separate out these things. Now what happened for me is this, as that, as that took place, I began to find the reality of God take over the reality of my pastor. In fact, as I began to find the Lord more and more real, because I was putting Him as the dominant one in my heart, I began to find that my heart began to be more aware of God than upon what people think of me. And so there are times in which I could hear people saying, ah, I don't like him, I don't like what, what he's doing. Oh, I don't think he prayed in the spirit. I think he was of, of the flesh and all that. It didn't matter because God was more dominant in me. The fear of the Lord actually has a way of kicking out other things when we let God become the more dominant one in our lives. We have many fears, we have many pains. And these pains don't just go away. But what, I, what I'd like to say is this, when we have the fear of the Lord and we put God as more dominant in our lives, more, more of regard, what happens is that He begins to shine through, begins to peer through the darkness, peer through the clouds. Little by little by little by little, we are more aware of Him. Before long, He takes the dominant place. And when He takes the dominant place, even though there are these suggestions, these fearful things, these pains that have they are, begin to be relativized. They begin to take a smaller role. They begin to be less dominant than the presence of the Lord around us. Try it. If you have pain and the Lord is present, we just set our heart towards Him and allow Him to begin to seep through. You give Him time. Be patient. Let Him begin to, 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 to make Himself real. It's something that He has to do. And when He does it, at a certain point, you will have the pain, but pain is far, far removed. For 15 years, I had arthritis after I had had my accident. And so for 15 years, every day I had pain. Sometimes I would wake up in the morning and the pain would, be, would, would make it feel as if I can't even do anything in the day because sometimes it would flare out and all that. It was a pain in my hip. 
and I had seen chiropractors, I'd seen doctors, I'd seen orthopedics, uh, doctors and all that. And they said that the only way you can actually be healed is to actually have, have a hip replacement. But at that time, I didn't have the resources nor the, the time to actually really put it, do, do anything about it. Partly also my own sort of procrastination. But every day, I woke up and as I spent time with the Lord, and as I spent time just praying, just worshipping Him in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, more and more, His presence would come. And the pain would be there. But it's almost as if the pain was on the side. It did not obsess me. It did not hold me. There are many anxieties that we all have in our lives. I bet you. We have lots of anxieties. The thing about these anxieties is they grip us. They become the dominant story in our life. They become the do dominant music in our lives. What God wants to do is to not necessarily take them away, but to actually be there in the presence, right in the center. And when He becomes more and more real in our lives, these things begin to go more off to the Sometimes they even disappear. Let us pray. Bless your name, Lord. We love you, Lord. We come before you with all our fears, our anxieties. We come before you with all our challenges that you have in our own apprehension of the future. We bring our wills to you. All the things that we use to boost our own sense of self, we bring it before you and we lay it down at your throne, lay it down at your feet, and we welcome you to come and have your own way. We are not your clients, Lord, we confess. But we are your children and your servants. Come, Holy Spirit. For some of us, God is reminding us of things that we have promised the Lord, vows that we've made, that we've set aside. And He's calling us to change the whole positioning of our relationship in such a way that He is dominant in our life. Come Holy Spirit, we welcome You. Have Thine own way, Lord. Have Thine own way. Thou art the potter and I am the clay. 
mold me and make me after your will. As I am waiting, yielded and still. Lord, you recognize and know and have mercy upon our own inconstancy. We want to be held with strength in this relationship. May something more, more powerful, more strong, more stable than our own emotions and our own passions. We recognize that there is nothing enough in us to continue this relationship with you unless you come in your grace. We recognize that for some of us, we've, we've minimized you and utilized you. And so when we need you, we can't find you because you're so small. So we welcome you, Lord, to be magnified in our hearts, in Jesus' name. You are big enough, we say, for every anxiety, every fear that we have. You are big enough for every intractable problem. You are so big that even though we don't see the answer, the way out, We bless your name, Lord. We bless your name. Are there appointments that you've forgotten about? Are there commitments that you feel that the Lord is saying, I've been speaking to you about this? I have more for you. Don't be impatient. So we, Lord, we come before you. We say, have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. service is now over. If you would like prayer, uh, feel free to come up to the front and we'll have a prayer minister pray for you. If you'd like to just sit and soak uh, and continue um, with with God, please do so. Um, if you'd like to fellowship, uh, make your way back to the narthex and it is after 12 o'clock. So parents or uh, caregivers, if you can pick up your young ones, um, now would be the time. And please remember to take your cups with you as you go and throw them away, please. And have a blessed day. May God be with you.